On Christmas Eve in 1968, in what was at the time the most watched television broadcast, the crew of Apollo 8 circled the dark side of the moon and headed home. As their tiny capsule, capsule raced through space, they saw the glistening blue and white hues of earth fill their window. In that majestic moment, they were struck with awe and wonder. They did not quote Einstein or Shakespeare or Darwin. <laughs> Taking turns, the three reverently recited Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. They did it word for word from a Bible supplied by the Gideons. Billions of people around the world heard the word of God echoing from outer space. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Watch part of this now. We are now approaching uh, lunar sunrise. And uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the Earth. And the Earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light, and God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. That image was eventually turned into a postage stamp with the words, in the beginning, God. I was reflecting on that. The chances of us having a stamp with a Bible verse on it today are about the same as seeing a six-cent stamp again. <laughs> in reporting on that big event, I came across a sentence from an article in National Geographic. Quote, the Apollo 8 mission captured a photograph of Earth from space that forever changed the way we see ourselves. Now, that might have been one of the benefits, but I submit the wonder of creation for, should forever change the way we see our Creator. Our text today is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. If you want to turn there, that's found on page one, by the way. <laughs> Here's what I'm hoping we learn together. Genesis has a big beginning because God is a big God. Last weekend, we kicked off our series. We're calling it Back to the Beginning, and we established this truth to move forward in our faith. Well, we must go back to the beginning. How many of you have been using the Edgewood Bible reading plan this month? 
Yeah, a number of you are. If you're using something else, that's great. If you're floundering, you're like, man, I'm not really reading my Bible. And many times we don't know where to read. I encourage you to pick up one of these. They're available in both of the resource kiosks. You can also get that on the church app or on our website. We're reading through uh, the book of Genesis during the month of October. Uh, Many of us are also reading the very first chapter of Genesis Every day, just keep going back and reading Genesis chapter 1 during the month of October. And then last weekend, I gave a bonus assignment and challenged all of us to read the entire book of Genesis in one sitting. That will take you about three, three and a half hours And so this week, I was thinking about that assignment, and I thought, well, let me soften it a little bit. You can certainly use an audio Bible and listen to the book of Genesis. That's a good idea. Well, last night when I came to the service, three different people told me that they've already completed that assignment. One of them had tears in their eyes. And I said, what jumped out at you by reading the entire book, all 50 chapters in one sitting? And he said something like this. I saw the story of God's covenant love with his people. I commend that to you. The challenge is to read that before Thanksgiving. The first sentence of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible is simple. It's straightforward. Yet, it's complex, and it's compelling. It's easy to understand, and yet, its meaning is inexhaustible. It is both majestic and mysterious. It is factual, and yet Hebrews 11.3 tells us it's something we believe by faith. The opening verse of the Bible is controversial in our culture today. You've noticed that, haven't you? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Skeptics and atheists and evolutionists and unbelievers and doubters of all varieties have taken aim at the book of Genesis, arguing that it's absurd to believe in the existence of God today. It's absurd to believe in a six-day creation, a literal Adam and Eve, a talking serpent, a garden of Eden, original sin, Noah and the ark, a worldwide flood, and the Tower of Babel. One pastor said it like this, unfortunately, many Christians have bought into these attacks to a significant degree. So let me just pause there. Maybe that's you today. I'm praying that God will use this series to get us back to the basics, back to our foundation. Because we're intimidated by the cacophony of criticism, it's been easier for us to keep silent so that we won't be mocked or to make a series of compromises so that we can live at peace with the unbelieving majority. There is no need to make compromises with unbelievers. It never works, it never helps, and they won't be convinced by our compromising anyway. Since Genesis 1 verse 1 is true, 
I appreciate the insight of Ray Pritchard, who says seven beliefs are dismantled by this one opening verse. Atheism, materialism, pantheism, humanism, fatalism, pantheism, and evolution. Naturalistic evolution, he writes, as a worldview is diametrically opposed to biblical faith. It's pagan at its root and evil in its fruit. Now, we could say it like this. If Genesis is not true, then the whole Bible is suspect. If you can't trust what is written here in the book of Genesis, how can you trust the rest of Scripture? A.W. Pink refers to Genesis as the seed plot of the entire Bible. If you discount Adam and Eve, how can you be sure Christ is real? I was reflecting even yesterday, creation, the miracle of creation. If you doubt that, then why believe in the miracle of the resurrection? You see, Genesis either explains it all or it does not explain it at all. You either believe it or you don't. And if you don't, you can't believe anything else in the Bible. If you believe it, you can believe everything else the Bible teaches. According to Psalm 14, verse 1, it's the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. Now, I've not read this book yet, but my plan is to read Erwin Lutzer's new book. Here I am recommending a book I haven't even read yet. (laughs) Well, I try to read everything Erwin Lutzer writes. Here's the title, No Reason to Hide, Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture. Here's the first sentence from the summary of the book, quote, in a culture with an ever-narrowing definition of tolerance, Christians can no longer stay silent about the divide between the Bible's truth and the world's lies. So let's go back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to see two pillars in this one verse. First pillar, God is eternal. Second pillar, God created everything. Number one, God is eternal. Would you note, we're not given any arguments for the existence of God. No, the fact of his being is simply stated in an uncompromising way. In the beginning, God. The Bible is dogmatic that God exists. And it gives evidence of his existence everywhere. As creator, God existed before his creation. Have you ever thought of this? Everything else in the universe has a beginning or a cause. God alone has always been, is always, and will always be. He alone is self-existent. One pastor put it like this. He is the first cause, himself uncaused. Let me take us back to a conversation Moses was having with God. God wanted Moses to deliver a message Moses didn't want to do, so he's stalling. He's looking for excuses. And finally, Moses says, okay, God, if I go, who should I tell them is sending me? In Exodus 3, verse 14, the answer given by God, the Almighty, is bold, and it's very brief. I am who I am. 
The Almighty's answer in English is something like this, I be or I exist. God has always been and he will always be. God made time and he is before time because he is timeless. Are you worshiping yet? When I see the word beginning, I think of a line from Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music. Now, I grew up in a family with four daughters, so we were always watching some sort of musical. I always told my daughters that I didn't mind musicals. It's just all the singing and the dancing I don't like. (laughs) Anyway, here's a line from that one. Quote, let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. In Hebrew, the word beginning is bereshit, which means best, chief, first fruits, highest, most excellent. This word is connected to the reign of a king, which is how most Jewish prayers begin. Blessed are you, God, our God, king of the universe. Some have found spiritual significance in this opening word by looking at the individual Hebrew letters which represent words, words like son and covenant. I find it fascinating. The first letters of the Hebrew word for beginning form the basis of the Hebrew word bara, which means to create. This name for God is Elohim, and it's in the plural which is early evidence for the Trinity, which will be more fully developed later. God, in the plural, Elohim, created, that word is in the singular, which shows God is one, and yet he eternally exists in three persons. For some more evidence, notice verse 2, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then drop down to verse 26. Then God, Elohim, said, notice the plural, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Elohim is intensive. It indicates God's fullness of power. The beginning letters E-L, L indicates and signifies he is the strong God. He is majestic and mighty. This name for God, Elohim, is used in other passages to indicate there's at least five other titles and roles that go with the name Elohim. The first is creator. We see that in Genesis 5, verse 1, when God Elohim created man. He made him in the likeness of God. But we also see king and judge and Lord and Savior. For God to be present in the beginning, he had to exist before the beginning of time, which means God is outside of time. That's a mind blow. He was there in the beginning because he had no beginning, and he'll be there in the end because he has no end. Psalm 90, verse 12, says it like this, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, before all that, from everlasting to everlasting, you are 
God. Settle this, the universe is not eternal. Only God is. Uh, Stephen Cole writes this, Consider just the enormity of the universe. If you could travel at the speed of light, it would take you eight minutes to get from the earth to the sun. To go from the sun to the center of the Milky Way would take about 33,000 years. The Milky Way belongs to a group of some 20 galaxies known as the local group. To cross the local group, you'd have to travel at the speed of light for two million years. The local group belongs to the Virgo cluster, part of the even larger local supercluster, which would take you 500 million light years to cross. To cross the entire known universe would take you about 20 billion light years. And you thought it took a long time to get across the bridge. (laughs) A.W. Pink points out false religions and human philosophies begin with man and in some cases, seek to work up to God. But the Bible begins with God as the one who is the beginning, the one who made all that is. We must, in all our thinking, begin with God. Reminds me of an illustration. Some scientists had gotten together, and they had decided they no longer needed God. And they decided to tell the smartest scientists to have a conversation with God and tell God they were done with him. And so the man said to God, God, we've decided we no longer need you. We're to the point where we can clone people. We can do many miraculous things, so don't bother us anymore. God listened patiently, and he said, very well, but before I leave you alone, let's have a man-making contest. We'll do it just like I did back in the day with Adam. The scientist said, sure, no problem, as he bent down to grab a handful of dirt. God quickly replied, what are you doing? Go get your own dirt. (laughs) I'm not going to repeat that. You can talk to the person next to you later. How many of you guys ever went to a Promise Keeper rally? Yeah, look at that. Many years ago in Chicago, E.V. Hill preached. He preached on just two words. He preached for 40 minutes on these two words. He shouted these words. He whispered these words. He repeated these words over and over, and he dared anyone to deny it. Those two words, God is. Friends, settle this. Genesis has a big beginning because God is a big God. Number two, second pillar, God created everything. The second part of verse one is profound and yet simple enough for everyone to understand. See it with your own eyes. God created the heavens and the earth. This is stated and expanded by Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, that'd be the angels, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. 
The word created in the Bible is only used with God as its subject. It means to create something new. I'm not sure why theologians often break out into Latin. I think I know why, but often if you're studying God's creation, you'll come across a Latin phrase, ex nihilo, which means out of nothing or from nothing. And we'll see in the rest of this chapter, God simply spoke and it was So, he created the world by his word. We get more clarity on this from Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. That phrase, heaven and earth, is a merism which are two polar opposites, opposites which include everything in between. In other words, in the beginning, God made everything. I like how Matthew Henry refers to it. He says, God created the frame and the furniture of the universe. The heavens and the earth include the invisible as well as the visible, realms unseen and seen. The universe is filled with great variety and beauty and exactness and detail and power and order and mystery. Elohim created the entirety of the universe. There is nothing made that he has not made. Walk with me through Genesis chapter 1. Let's stop first at verse 7. And God made, verse 16, and God made, verse 21. So God created, uh, verse 25, and God made, and then the last verse, and God saw everything that he had made. Some of my best friends are fellow gospel-preaching pastors. One of my really good friends in this community is Ben Lovelady. He's pastor of First Baptist Church in Silvis. Ben has written a couple hundred deep devotionals from the book of Genesis, and I can't wait for these to be published. He sent me these devotionals about a month ago. Here's part of one. Quote, in ancient times, gods were thought to have zip codes, like crossing state lines where speed limits and laws might change. So the ancient mind believed one god had jurisdiction over this plot of land and another god over that. God, however, starts out his book by ridding the reader of such a notion. From the highest to the lowest, God says, it's all mine. Elohim brought design out of disorder. He created the cosmos out of chaos. He birthed beauty out of barrenness, and he continues to do the same in lives today. And some of you can give testimony of that as God has recreated you through the new birth. Others of you are longing for that recreation in your own life. 
Proverbs 16.4 says, God created everything on purpose for his purposes. The Lord has made everything for its purpose. Let me personalize it. Some of you think, I got too much going on. I have too many sins. I've got this addiction. I got this problem. I blew up that relationship. I'm in a bad, bad place. Listen, lock into this truth. Because God created you, you matter to him, and he has plans and purposes for you. According to Psalm 96, verse 5, only God creates, which is just another way of saying that only God is the creator. All the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. One pastor writes this, God has left his fingerprints all over this world. Every rock, every twig, every river, every mountain bears his signature, right? You can see all the leaves turning colors now. He signed his name to everything he made. The earth is marked by, made by God in letters so big that no one fails to see it. I came across a paragraph, I can't remember where I first read it, it goes like this, think about the amazing balance God has put in creation. Our planet is perfectly designed to sustain life. If it were closer to the sun, we'd burn up. If we're farther from the sun, we would freeze. If the earth were a few miles smaller in diameter, the density of his atmosphere would be so thin that the earth would not retain enough heat to sustain animal or human life. The earth's waters would freeze to such a depth that all other forms of life would perish. But if earth were a few miles larger in diameter, the air would become so dense that too much heat would be absorbed, resulting in the death of all living things. As evidence of the centrality of the doctrine of creation in the early church, both of the major creeds of the Christian church establish this pillar of truth in their opening lines. I read from the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And from the Nicene Creed, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Are you aware we see three dimensions in Genesis 1, verse 1? Time, space, and matter. Time, in the beginning, space, God created the heavens and matter and the earth. The first verse of the Bible gives us answers to the two big questions of origins. How did the universe begin and who is behind it? We mentioned last week, Genesis describes where we came from. That's the question of origins. Why we are here, that's the question of purpose. And where we're headed, that's the question of destiny. And when we compromise what the Bible says about creation, we invariably end up confused about our origins. We don't know where we came from. We don't know why we're here. And we don't know where we're going. Friends, God is the central subject of the first sentence in the Bible. And are you aware he's referred to by name 31 times in 31 verses in Genesis chapter 1? 
a journey with me. Verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, the Spirit of God. Verse 3, and God said. Verse 4, and God saw. Verse 5, God called. Verse 6, and God said. Verse 7, and God made. Verse 8, and God called. Verse 9, and God said. Verse 10, God called. Verse 11, and God said. Reminds me of the opening line from one of the most popular books ever written by a pastor. Here's the opening line. It's not about you. It's all about God. I quote from Pastor Ben again. Most primarily, we must see ourselves within a story, not our own. Most fundamentally, we are called to be observers before we're called to be participants. The central character of the story will soon be introduced. It is him that we are tasked primarily with watching. Our role then is not first to develop our personal storyline. Let me just pause there. That's what our culture teaches. Let me just figure out yourself, live out your dreams. It's all about you. Ben writes... It's not first to develop our personal storyline, but to follow his. I like how another pastor distills it all down to one sentence. Here's the choice. Either the eternal, intelligent, all-powerful God created the universe and everything in it, or it came about from senseless chance acting on matter that has eternally existed. Friends, Genesis has a big beginning because God is a big, big God. Let's summarize. Pillar number one, God is eternal. Pillar number two, God created everything. When I was a new Christian, one of the first books I read was by A.W. Tozer called Knowledge of the Holy. There's a quote from that book that I come, keep coming back to many times. It came back to me again this week. Here's how it goes. When I read this, don't Don't go over this too quickly. It's quite profound. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I mean, if you think God's just there to meet all your needs, that tells a lot about you. But if you see God as holy and majestic and mighty and just and gracious and merciful and loving as demonstrated by the cross of Jesus Christ, that says a ton about you. Consider Romans 1, verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. We can believe in the existence of God and understand many of the Creator's attributes simply by looking at the creation he created. And so we're without excuse should we ever say there's no evidence for the existence of God. This is also stated in Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The skies are shouting his glory, and the heavens proclaim his holy handiwork. In July, just a few months ago, the entire world was gripped 
by some stunning images from the James Webb Space Telescope. I came across a paragraph in an article in Christianity Today published shortly afterwards. Quote, There are approximately a trillion galaxies out there, each encompassing an average of 100 to 200 billion stars. Did you catch that? 100 to 200 billion stars in each galaxy, and there's a trillion galaxies. Our home, this pale blue dot called Earth, has not stopped shrinking in comparative stature. Now it is found to be a mid-sized planet orbiting a mid-rank star in one galaxy out of a trillion. I'm going to submit to you, this should cause us to worship. As we consider the wonderful work of God's creative genius. Just look at this. God is behind his universe, but he's also beyond the universe because he's our creator. Let's look to the cosmos and be humbled. And then let's look at the cross and see God's holiness on display. When David looks at the heavens in Psalm 8, his reaction is, what is man? Who am I that you even think of me? And yet he does. Last weekend, we ended with a call to worship as we considered how the book of Revelation fulfills Genesis. In my preparation for this message, I came across a post called The First Call to Worship, 12 Attributes of God in one verse. The author pulled out 12 attributes of God from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I spent time worshiping him for who he is and for what he's done. Let me just give a summary in one sentence. God is one spirit, eternal, infinite, unchangeable, self-existent, living, immortal in his being, the omnipotent, omniscient creator and sovereign of all things in heaven and on earth, of all things visible and invisible. This, friends, is the God we meet in the first verse of the Bible. And as such, we're called to worship him like the living creatures are doing right now. Check out Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Notice the next phrase, for you created. They're worshiping God for his creation, for his creative abilities. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were Created. So if that's the response of the creatures in heaven as they contemplate who God is and what he's done in creation, then what ought to be our response as his creatures who live here on earth? Let me say a word to those of you who are younger. If you're a young child, a teenager, a young adult, I find it fascinating that Solomon in his journal where he's seeking and searching for meaning and purpose, he writes these words in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. You see, since God created everything, He created you, which means you must answer to Him. 
Acts 17.24 tells us God is not only the creator of everything, he is also Lord of all. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. And as a result, listen to verse 30, he commands all people everywhere to repent. So instead of running and hiding in shame, like Adam and Eve did when they sinned, God is calling us to repent, to surrender to Jesus Christ, and ask him to save us from our sins. Friends, what we believe about the doctrine of creation affects everything else we believe. Since God created us, then these 10 things are true. I wrote these down this week. Number one, number one, we did not evolve. Number two, our bodies don't belong to us. They belong to him. It's not my body, my choice. Number three, the preborn must be protected. Number four, everyone has dignity and value. Everyone matters, regardless of race and color and age and language and disability and politics and class and gender. Even Bears fans matter. I had to remind myself of that. Number five, our gender is designed and assigned by the Creator. And we'll take a whole message on that topic in a few weeks. Number six, everything we own, actually, we don't own anything. It all belongs to Him. We have the opportunity to manage what is His. We're not the owner. Well, that changes everything, doesn't it? That changes how we use time, for it's not our time. It changes how we use the gifts and abilities that God has given to us because they come from him. And it changes how we manage the resources that he's trusted, entrusted to us to make sure we're doing all we can to reach our neighbors and the nations with the gospel of Christ. Number seven, our lives have meaning and purpose. God designed and created everyone and everything to put his glory on display. We are image bearers of God. Number eight, God has authority over our lives and we are accountable to him. If eternal matter plus impersonal chance caused all this, though I guess we just live how we want because we don't have to answer to anyone or anything. But if a personal God created everything by his word, a God who is awesome in holiness, then we are accountable to him. Number nine, we're made to know God. Ecclesiastes 3.11, he's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart. Number 10, we must live our lives to the glory of God. In 1971, astronaut James Irwin was the eighth person to walk on the moon. When he walked on the moon, he had a life-changing encounter. His life changed. He used to be a nominal Christian, just going through the motions. He went to church, didn't do much more than that. Here's how he described his time walking on the moon, God's creation. Quote, I felt the power of God as I've never felt it before. 
He became a sold-out follower of Christ. He was so impacted by that that he left NASA. He resigned from NASA after a year, within a year, and for 20 years went around the world preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Irwin was quoted as saying, God decided that he would send his son, Jesus Christ, to the blue planet. And it's through faith in Jesus Christ that we can relate to God. As I travel around, check this quote out, I tell people the answer is Jesus Christ. That Jesus walking on the earth is more important than man walking on the moon. I'm going to invite you to stand now and just close your eyes as we close. Holy Spirit, uh, you now take your word and apply it to each of our lives. You'll do that in customized ways for each one here standing shoulder to shoulder and others who are connecting online or watching or listening at a later date. So Holy Spirit, convict those of us who need conviction. Equip those of us who need to be equipped. Challenge us. Use us. Rebuke us. Remind us. You're our teacher, Holy Spirit, and our encourager. Lord, for that person who's not yet repented of their sins and turned in faith, by faith, to receive the finished work of Jesus on the cross who died and rose again on the third day, Lord, today, may today be their salvation. Lord, for that Christian who's living a nominal life, just going through the motion, Lord, may today be the day of rededication where he or she would submit and surrender to you afresh bowing before your supremacy as creator and redeemer, as Lord of all. We offer ourselves to you now. Use us for your purposes, for the fame of your glorious name, we pray. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen.